Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. All right. Do you want to uh, come up and start? And s- How is it? Um, it's a lot different than it was in the dojo, and it was just a really big contrast because I wasn't expecting it to be that different. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those differences? Just a different prioritization of things. Um, Like, one of the examples is you can basically come back to the dorms completely drunk and like need medical attention and everything, and the RAs won't do anything. They'll just like call EMS. But if you forget your mask, then they'll start yelling at you, (laughs) writing you up, (laughs) things like that, which like one of them is against the law and the other one's like a public health recommendation, but we're all living together, so it's like if someone gets sick. Yeah, I think um, I think what you're experiencing, if if we can think of it just generally, there's a culture shock. Um, if you. You're going from one culture to another culture, and they're at variance to each other. That is by design. The shock is not by design, but the dojo culture to be at variance with the world culture is by design. Um, In contrast, in most dojo, especially under what I have called an Americanist culture or an Americanism, an Americanist nihilism, uh, which is much of what we would consider either the first world or the developed world or the United States or Europe, Canada, etc. Um, that is most of who does Aikido in those places, their culture is that culture that you're experiencing at the university. And they have made the art in their image. And this dojo is not that image. And it is not as Chiba Sensei would say, it is not a self-indulgence, that act of making something in your image rather than sharpening or honing or sculpting yourself to fit what Aikido is or what Budo is. Do you see? They redefine, they recreate, they reinvent so they don't have to transform. 
So in many, many ways, this dojo is another world, another country, another culture, another time. And so when you look at what is a culture, you're looking at a different worldview, a different belief system, a different value system, a different theory of self, a different theory of time, a different theory of reality, the nature of existence. But it's all purposeful here, meaning I have made it so. I think most people that would come, and we've had them, right? We've had them come from other dojo. And uh, you could just see they're just uncomfortable. Like, like anyone who would go to a foreign country and experience that cultural variance, right? Um, 20, 30, 40 years ago, not many Westerners, for example, had much exposure to Japanese culture, even within Aikido. And to go to Japan and um, to sit in Seiza and to remove your shoes and to squat down on those toilets of theirs and to uh, eat your food with chopsticks was very uncomfortable for a lot of people. They can't work the chopsticks. They don't know how to squat without dirtying their pants. The whole idea is not just physically difficult. It's disgusting to them. It's experienced at a visceral level, you see, at an ontological level, at a level of identity. And then to be excluded of things due to... Uh, a Japanese person's ability to recognize this would make you so uncomfortable. I'm going to do you a favor and not bring you into it is not experienced as a favor. It's, experience, it's experienced as exclusionary. And it wells up, again, visceral emotions, the sense of hatred, and anger and injustice. So we've had Aikidoka come, big federation people, right? I think every feder I think every federation person deep down knows something's wrong. Something is wrong. They're not quite sure. Do you see? Otherwise, there's no there's no reason at all for following this dojo, for example, online because we have nothing to give you. We have nothing. You don't need anything from here to continue to survive in the federation systems, do you see? In fact, if you do anything from here, it'll probably cause more problems for you within the federation system. For example, if you were to develop your internal aspects, that's going to cause a lot of problems for you because your shihan can't do it, nor their teacher. They can't do it either. So how do you fit in the hierarchy now? And then you'll be doing the techniques differently from everyone. Uke, 
will no longer be allowed to throw themselves. They'll actually have to have their balance taken from them. That'll be frightening to them. That will be experienced in the same kind of repulsive way. They will think you think ill of you. You'll, you'll be uh, labeled with aggressive or angry or something like that because they cannot feel as in control as they're used to, do you see? So we've had those people come here and uh, they can't even they can't even perform, right? I mean, we had that intensive training. Remember, remember, we, I got invited to do a seminar, and I was like, "No, I don't do seminars because you can't learn at seminars. It's impossible to learn in seminars. Ukemi is itself a cultural act, meaning the way you take ukemi." has the understanding of the art within it. And there's many understandings of the art, and most of them are misunderstandings. So to go to a place and to believe that you're going to be able to practice with whomever as uke is full of shit. You either will cave to their way or do your way and then suffer the ill understanding of yourself through their eyes. Then you add to that the fact that most Aikidoka are out of shape, are elderly, are immobile, do you see? What are you going there for? It's a waste of time. Let me work out with strong, vigorous people. So no, I'm not going to do a seminar, but if you want, you can come here and train for a week. So they come to train for a week, but it was a waste of time, wasn't it? They couldn't even do the, the daily schedule. They were, they were physically, emotionally, and spiritually incapable of receiving the culture. So by design, this place is different. As, as it is as different from these other Aikido dojo, and because those other Aikido dojo have usurped what Aikido is and what Budo is to make it in their image, the world's image, the dojo is as different from those dojo as it is from the world. And that's what you're experiencing. Here, for example, the emotional or spiritual frailty that requires the use of intoxicants. is against our values. It's against the value of strength of virtue, of self-reliance, of accepting reality as it is. As much as it is against our school or our thought on strategy. How martial are you under such intoxication? How aware are you 
you, most of these seminars, they, get just, they just get blasted drunk at the end. Or in the night. I mean, this is how it is at the universities, right? You're just drunk, drunk, drunk all the time. When I was at UCSB, the joke was UCSB stood for you can study buzzed. Now patrolling this area as a law enforcement officer, you have to watch that you don't get high in the city because there is so much weed. The smoke is so thick that you got to take breaks on the, on the big streets because you're like, you're not feeling good. But this place, this university itself is that world, do you see? That larger world. Today I wrote on, um, on Nietzsche, on the blog. And uh, I studied him first at the university. And I was at the university when uh, the, the progressive movement started, started, critical theory started. I was there. Uh, of course, the, its roots, Marxist thought, it had been in the university since the 60s, in the American university. But it started to evolve after the 60s into this, what we could just for simplicity's sake call cultural Marxism. You see, so there was a realization that in some ways Marx missed all of the ways that power is, uh, takes shape or is utilized. It's not just through um, material economy. There's all kinds of ways uh, that society is organized uh, between a division of the haves and the have-nots. And uh, that kind of scholarship uh, eventually took on what was called, when I was there, was literary criticism. The reason for it is it sprout up through a re-looking at literature in English departments, language departments, French. So you'd be, you, were, you would be in the French department, but you weren't studying French language. You were reading a French novel through a literary criticism point of view. So you were reading it to see or to prove um, or to generate this propaganda towards this division between the have and have-nots that was happening at a cultural level. So not just material capital, but also symbolic capital or cultural capital, things like that, or kinship systems, for example. Uh, it's no accident that it started in the literature departments. Um, the correlation is because it is 
without proof. It therefore requires no history. So it didn't show up in the history departments. So you would read these books, for example, and here would go this armchair philosopher, which for a long time had been criticized in departments like history, history sociology, anthropology. It was, their methodology was very critical of the person who just sat in their armchair, you get in their office chair and their ivory tower in the university and came up with ideas, do you see? Well, that's what literary criticism was. Don't, don't do any field work. Don't actually read any original text or anything. Don't do a biography on the author. Just look at the text. Just sit here, read the text, and come up with these ideas. Really, it was plug and play. It was the opposite of a true methodology. You, just, you had already your cultural Marxist theory, and you just read the book from that lens. It was the opposite of a scientific method. So it could only happen amongst people who were not scientific. And that's who went into these literary um, departments, do you see? It goes way deeper. I mean, there's real reasons for it. If you look, if you look in the university, um, very, very few people start out with the, with the language major or even an English major or a literature major. They usually fail out of one of the scientific departments. They may have started out as an engineer and then, oh, I suck at math. And then they realize, because they're partying too hard and shit like that, uh, that they pretty much suck at anything rigorous and you're going to do the least rigorous kind of scholarship. Armchair scholarship is where you go. So being there at the university when that happened and being of what they were calling Hispanic or Chicano, which nobody talks about anymore. Apparently the Chicanos have died off. But that was the movement. And my scholarship was gaining a lot of light. But my scholarship, as you know, was on the history of thought. And that was of interest to them because what happens when you become an, American ne uh, an Americanist nihilist, because of how fragile you are, from your disintegration of the psychological foundations that human beings have used for centuries, like the family, like fatherhood, parenthood, religion, ritual, truth, and a true value system where not everything is equal, when you disintegrate all that, you lose all of those psychological or all of those emotional anchor points. You start to go crazy. 
Nihilism is a mental illness. It is one that Nietzsche could smell coming. But it's those people. It's those people. It's not everyone. There's people all over the world that have not disintegrated these psychological anchor points. And there's people in the United States. There's people in California. There's probably people in Santa Barbara, which might be hard to believe, but there probably are people in Santa Barbara that have not disintegrated all of these emotional anchor points. They're not nihilist. And they're not frail and fragile to the world that they do not need intoxicants in order to survive. But when I was there, this movement was coming, do you see? They're making scholarship in their own image, just like Aikido is. They make scholarship in their own image. And I felt I was in the middle of it because they were trying to draft me, do you see? But I found what they were doing very problematic because my reason for doing the history of thought was to free myself from my own time period. There was a deep drive for liberation. But they wanted me to be one, one of many. They wanted to be, me, to be many, do you see? They didn't want me to be Dave. They wanted me to be Chicano. And because there was no methodology to their science, so to speak, there was no history to it. And my weapon was history, historiography. As they're trying to draft me, I did the history of Chicano. That did not go over well. Because it's, it's entirely a fabrication of the imagination. But even then, you could see the psychological need for this, what we now call progressivism. You could see the need for it. In other words, you could see the psychosis, the underlying psychological frailty that needed this. In other words, you could see the nihilism there, you could see the mental illness. Now, if you, if you look up, if you try to find nihilism in a in some sort of psychology, it's not going to be described as a mental illness, but I am telling you, it is a mental illness, in the same way that Viktor Frankl would say, uh, this, this need for meaning is your, your, and their fulfillment of meaning is your wellness state. Well, then the opposite of it would be your illness state. You're not going to find it in the textbooks, but it is. 
and you could see it, and you could trace it. it if you, you could do the sociology of it. It's, you don't have to just do the history of it. You could do the sociology of the proponents, and you're going to find these breakdowns of these psychological anchor points. In their personal history, you'll find it. And then you begin to understand the drive. You're looking at an injured animal. And hence why they're so desperate. And for things that destroy them. So you have what is in, in, in essence a kind of suicide, do you see? When you drink yourself to the point where you're unconscious, it's very dangerous. You can die from the alcohol poisoning. It happens all the time. You can kill people because you're driving home like that. That happens all the time. You can die because you're driving home like that. I had a roommate on my dorm. He lived next door to me. He was from that culture. Do you see? His family was just no psychological anchor points, no ritual, no religion, no values, no nothing. Drunk all the time, sexually confused all the time. Heavy into material image. Nice cars, nice clothes, everything. Barely went to class. Driving home, drunk. Drove off the one, died. Highway one, drove over the cliff, died. Can also be raped. The rapes are insane on campus because the, the legal definition, which is not a bad one, you need to give consent. If you're not giving consent, we're going to count it as a rape. Well, if you're passed out, you can't give consent. Then you wake up the next day, and now you're claiming rape. Now you're reporting rape. And this person is saying, no, 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 we were dating. And now, oh, we can't tell anymore because there's no values anymore. Everything's gray, even when we try to make them black and white. Today I saw a video to show you how separate we are. You know, I was in San Francisco for the civil unrest. There is a peace officer. I used to live in San Francisco. I think it was in the early 90s when I was going to Berkeley. It's a big city. Big cities are... Not so clean. There's all kinds of 
adventures and experiences, smells and foods, cultures. They were wonderful. I used to, when I would go to school, I would take the bus and BART to Berkeley. But on the way home, I would only take BART and I would walk a different way from the BART station to North Beach area. Because there was always something new to see, something new to try. It was fantastic. When I went back into the civil unrest, it felt like I was in the movie The Walking Dead or the show The Walking Dead. It, everyone on the street was intoxicated. It's not the same place. But the people in power are these people that go to those schools that reinvent scholarship in their image, and they now reinvent cities and communities in their image. In, without the same, with, it, with the absence of all those psychological foundations, do you see? And that's how you get a city of zombies. And that's how you, you're going to defund the police, and you're going to villainize the police. And everybody's in a group. There's no more individuals, do you see? Everyone's in a group, just like I was supposed to be Chicano, not Dave. Everyone's in a group. But it's not that they put themselves in the group. It's the same. It's those people that go to those schools, deconstruct their experience of the world by dropping or subverting or, or losing all of those psychological anchor points, go to those schools where they learn how to do it and are convinced to do it, become emotionally frail and damaged, they put other people in groups. You're black, you're Asian, you're white, you're gay, you're straight. You're male, you're female, it's all groups. You're bad, you're good. But with no values to support any of it, do you see? So all cops are bastards. It's spray painted all over San Francisco. That's the Antifa slogan, do you see? What happened the other day in San Francisco? 80 to 100 people got together and robbed and burgled multiple stores in Union Square. What's the mayor and the police chief saying? Oh, if you come into our city, we're going to prosecute you. No, because you voted in a DA who won on we're not going to prosecute anymore because all of these people in these groups that we consider below our group, they don't have free will because we threw that psychological foundation out. So we threw out self-responsibility too. How can we prosecute these poor people 
let's just villainize the law enforcement. Let's get rid of them. Well, now look. 80 to 100 people can just get together and take over your city. And I saw in that news report, made up of reporters in that same community, it's the same group, having the same individual histories where their family units were subverted, where their values were subverted. It's the same people living from the same culture. We like to think it's a political view. It's not. It's a rearing. It's a way you're raised. They're talking about who said that you could do this? Who said that you could get 80 to 100 of your friends and go and start robbing people? It was, dude, you did. You said it in the mainstream media. You said it. That's who. You said that was good. You said that was fine. You did not critique it. You explained it. Where the old value system would have gone illegal, criminal, not permitted. And the irony is that he tells a story when his friend was in some store in San Francisco, when multiple people came in with knives and guns to loot the store, because his friend was there to buy some sweats, sweats that cost $2,300. You see, if you have a value system, if you have what we would polemically call a traditional value system, $2,300 pair of sweats is insane. Do you see? But you don't have a value system, now they're cool. But he doesn't realize that as he's saying it. So you go to a campus, which is made up of these people with these histories, coming from those childhoods, turning scholarship into their image. It's going to be a different world. Because you coming from here. As a, as a modern, we are all, this is all our history. We are all prone to this. Just like this dojo could easily have been prone to it. You have to resist it. You have to reject it. It's like you have to, I go to a different culture or a different country, and, uh, but it's not my culture, not my country, do you see it? Kind of like that. So all of these little 
subverting of our own little psychological anchor points, we all have them. We all have them. They're there. In other words, for example, we almost all come from broken homes. Again, the, um, the injured people from these broken homes will tell you it's not broken. But we have studies that tell us. We have the ACEs study, the adverse childhood experience. And it shows. You come from a, probably the most damaging, one of the most damaging things you can experience as a child is the breakup of your parents. There's many childhood psychiatrists that are telling parents, man, I know you can't get along, but if you care about your child, just suck it up, figure it out. We like to go, well, I don't want to show an unloving relationship in front of the children. Yeah, but the data actually says that it's fine to do that. It's better to do that than to actually separate. We live in a culture where it's 50%. 50% of our parents get divorced. They separate. So that childhood adverse experience is correlated to all kinds of things from incarceration to cancer. Well, I came from a broken home. All of us are on that childhood adverse experience list. All of us are in this culture that destroys our psychological and our emotional anchor points. All of us are prone to making Aikido in our image, in this sick image of ourself. But what I learned is you can pick, you can pick your culture. In the history, in my history of thought, I, I saw that thought, how you think about the world, involves agency. Either in the sense that somebody is picking it for you, or you are picking it for you. This is why the history of thought was about liberation. It, it returned agency to me. But I was probably primed to do that and to seek this liberation in my childhood. I don't know the complex subtleties that made it possible. Traditionally, historically, we would just call that karma. I don't know the mathematical equations that primed me for it. So I came from a broken household. My father was an alcoholic. And he beat my mother. I 
I am not that. I am still married. I now arrest those people. In those adverse childhood ex- experience, in that data, when they run these tests on people who go into law enforcement or any of the first responder professions, they score as high as the people that are in prison. But something is different in them. I mean, they have as many adverse childhood experiences, but something alchemically altered where they went. They didn't follow the current. They swam against it, do you see? I don't think this swimming is a once and for all thing either. It is a constant engagement. I would say this, for example, it wasn't but a few months ago that I finally forgave myself for being too small, too young, and too weak for stopping my father from slamming my mother into the washing machine. That lived with me till this year. I was probably four or five when I saw it. I could not move. I was terrified, petrified, frozen, stiff. I wanted to move, but I could not move. And I could not turn away. But from early on, I knew I could pick my father. And I did. This philosopher became my father. The Buddha became my father. Jesus became my father. That professor, this sensei, I made a different childhood for me. I adopted a different value system, do you see? A different belief system. But even then, 50 years before I forgave the little four-year-old, the little five-year-old from being unable to stop this 200-pound drunk man. And yesterday, I saw a video. This man, this giant man, 
closed very aggressively on his wife, smacked her, knocked her immediately down. I saw the same defense mechanisms. You just want to survive, do you see? It's not like self-defense. You see, in, the, in, your, in your idealized mat, it's only simulated violence. So you get hit, you get back in the fight, do you see? But in real violence, there's a time when you realize you're about to be killed. So you, you just want to survive, do you see? You get these, these defense mechanisms. You learn how to talk to the beast so he doesn't kill you. I saw my mom do it. She starts doing it. Diminishing what's going on. It's okay. Uh-huh. And he smacks her again. Then he picks her up, throws her across the room. She goes flying into the television on the wall. My mind went right back. Five years old, my mom slams into the washing machine. It's still there, do you see? As a scholar of religion... What I realized is that these ancient myths and these ancient rituals, what Joseph Campbell would call the hero's journey, is the means by which we can become more than our trauma a means by which we can free ourselves from our trauma. The dragon that the Arthurian knight slays is that drunk wife beater. But when you become an Americanist nihilist, that thing just festers. Do you see? I wear a shield on my chest now. Do you see? That shield on my left chest is the knight's shield. It's emblematic of it. That's why law enforcement officers wear that shield. It goes back to the code of chivalry. That's why we call it a shield. It's obviously not a shield. It's called the shield. What we have to do as Aikidoka in this dojo is understand not only the difference between these cultures, but why Why? Why do I need those myths? Why do I need those rituals? We need to understand what happens to us when we don't. It's not to judge 
I'm not going to call that drunk girl that passes out loser. I don't feel nothing like that. But if I do it, I call myself loser, do you see? Because it's not my value system. When you take away all of your foundational, your psychological, these psych what I'm calling now these psychological anchor points, you not only get insane behavior, self-destructive behavior. You see, nothing could really be more insane than harm directed at yourself. Really, like we are at the bottom now, do you see? We're, we are the greatest contradiction we can be at that moment. We're not well. We get there. But we shouldn't be there. When we adopt a place like this and a culture like this and a value system and a belief system and a ritual system, it's something we do for our own good. It's not something we do for the ill of the sick. That's how you get these first responders, do you see? They're there helping that girl. But you, you'll see it's a, it's a contradiction. Wow, how would you do that? And in the same way, there's more contradictions because there's no value system. There's no up or down, do you see, as Nietzsche would say. There's no up. We don't know up and down anymore. Do you get it? What do I judge things by? So everything becomes haphazard, and you get to see, okay, drinking yourself to a state of alcohol poisoning is totally fine. There's no health risk there, but I'm going to have to note the health, health risk because you're not wearing your mask. Do you see? It's because this is... This is the culture of the insane, of the mentally ill. And you get a newscast that's wondering how we got here when it was them. And a mayor and a police chief who's wondering how we got here in San Francisco. To go deeper, when I talk about these psychological anchor points, they're not as arbitrary, and I hope you realize this, they're, when you talk about my choices are insane or sane, they're not so arbitrary, do you see? Just in that, from that point of view, they're not arbitrary. 
You know, in other words, when you're looking at 50% divorce rate in the nation, or you're looking at one in four experiencing mental illness, or you're looking at the opiate addiction rate, do you see, or you're looking at suicide is still in the top 10 for uh, causes of death in the United States, or if you look at the other remaining nine and you wonder what goes into accidents, does that include overdoses that we're not counting as suicides anymore? Uh, our DUIs from all our drunk driving, do you see? Or you look at the remaining so-called medical ones and you cancel out or you select out all the addictive behaviors, including alcohol. What does that do for, all, for the metabolic disorders or the heart disease? What about smoking? What about weed smoking? Uh, what about carb addiction, do you see? And you start uh, looking deeper into these. You're like, wow. And we just define suicide as self-destructive behavior. And now you just have a category for self-destructive behavior. I bet it's overwhelmingly probably the first nine. Do you see? There's that and kidney failure. These psychological anchor points are, are not only this division between san sanity and insanity. There is an objective nature to them. And the way we do Aikido here, it's based on that. So for example, we don't do self-defense. Our Aikido techniques are not self-defense techniques, do you see? I have called them rituals. They are not if-then modes of training. They are rituals. They're every bit as ritualistic as a Catholic mass is ritualistic. They are not so much designed for your sanity, although I would say they function that way. They are designed because they are the very constructs of a particular understanding of the universe, of reality, of our experience of the world. This is what I mean when I say it's a belief system and why it requires faith. The techniques, for example, let's, let's pick a hot topic. Let's pick hierarchy. 
You see, in the culture of the mentally ill, hierarchy is how they blame their trauma. So, for example, they would look at my childhood and go, look, you see the patriarchy led to your trauma. Whereas in my childhood, the childhood that I selected, it was a violation of the patriarchy. Because the father is protector and supporter. He remains dangerous, but against threats to the family unit. All threats. He is not the threat himself in the household. But as an adolescent would reason, they imagine if your father wasn't so strong, four-year-old David, you could have had a choice. You could have had a chance to be in there. So let's start admiring weak men, effeminate men. Let's denounce strong men. But what happens? What happens? You destroy more things than you save. There's something philosophically called Chesterton's fence. There's an example of what I'm talking about. So Chesterton was a Englishman. He was great at debates. He was basically like a Sam Harris of today. And he was atheist because he was reasoning his way, do you see? But like Nietzsche, he realized Something, something's not working. Something's going wrong. I could smell it already. And you know what? In England, he became a Catholic. This is actually happening nowadays. There's a resurgence of Catholicism. As people are realizing... I don't feel so good. There's even a, a, a movement to return Catholicism to have the Mass in Latin again, not in the vernacular anymore, which to them is, look, that's part of this thing that's making us not too well. And there's a counter-movement because that's against papal order to 
start looking at excommunicating these people that came back to Catholicism to start to feel well. It's just the irony of history is just insane. So profound. So Chesterton, he's like, I don't feel so good. I know I'm right, but I, I'm not right. I'm not right because I'm not all right. I do not feel all right. He became a Catholic. And he came up with this idea of Chesterton's fence, which we now call Chesterton's fence. It, it works like this. Imagine you're walking. You're walking in this, the, 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 the prairie in the middle of the country. Do you see? And you're just walking, and you come upon this fence. And this fence is in your way, do you see? And you go, this fence is in my way. I'm, why, why is it in my way? I want to keep walking. I'm going to take it down. So you knock down the fence. But you do so without ever realizing or wondering or figuring out why was the fence there in the first place. And his rule is don't take down the fence until you know what the fence was doing. You could imagine, well, that fence was actually keeping out a monster and making us all safe. And now, so, you see. So it was, it was thing like, don't, don't start killing off ritual and community and values and truth and goodness and beauty until you really understand what they were doing for us. And that's kind of what's happening to me, for me, in my view, in the modern or the contemporary or the Americanist Aikido dojo. They like they've gotten rid of so much. Do you see? Like hierarchy. The teacher's more of a coach. You see, and it's important that the teacher is whoever the teacher is is equally representative in these groups they all put us in. Do you see? Do you get it? It has to be equal. Each one, all these groups we made up, all the ways we took your own individuality away from you, we're now going to reward you by not giving it back to you, but we're going to give you some of this arbitrary power. It's equally the same way, the way they value. Oh, why do you always take, why are you always nagging? Why aren't you the... The uke, do you see? Because they've made some weird freaking power relationship between Naga and uke, which is ironic in a mystic system that is supposed to move us beyond dichotomy. Do you see how weird this is? And they have women's training. There's women's only seminars. I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere there's all the other groups. They all have their seminars. There's just one group not allowed, your hierarchy, your patriarchy group, not allowed. They try to get rid of it, do you see? But these old systems and these rituals do not have that view of hierarchy. That's not what's going on. What's going on is what the Tao Te Ching tells you. There's a field of infinite potential, and it creates the possibility 
of two interrelated things and through which the entirety of the cosmos is built. Everything now is in relation to everything else. Do you see? And as such, not everything is equal. Do you see? Not everything is equal. And once you do that, you have hierarchy. It is not anything that we say it is today. It is the very structure of reality. So when you're doing your ritual, somebody is Nage, and somebody is Uke, and somebody is Yin, and somebody is Yang. And those change perpetually throughout the technique. And somebody is Sensei, and somebody is Deshi. It is not a political system superimposed upon this objective reality. It is the shape of objective reality itself. Now, you, me, humans, fall within this shape of reality. You are not on top of it. You are in it. You are of it. What is at the top? We call that God. There is a hierarchy within a hierarchy, within a hierarchy. And your movements, when you do your kihon waza, is the very act of creation itself. This thing that is at the top of the hierarchy, that is above the hierarchy, that is beyond the hierarchy, that gives birth to the hierarchy, is the creation act. And you are repeating the creation act in the ritual itself. And because, or if you can, if you actually can, do you see? Then you are one with the act of creation itself. If you pay attention, what we would call as a secular materialist, what we would call poor form, is nothing more then you applying the incorrect values at the incorrect time is nothing more than you not following the hierarchy, is nothing more than you being unnatural, you being antagonistic to the creative or the creation act itself, you being in a state of sin, you being disconnected with God. That is what you're doing over and over and over and over again. The fool who says, 
or who ask the self-defense question is looking for a crumb on the banquet table. And not only are they sure to miss the point and the true prize, but in that very question, they have applied the incorrect values. They're out of alignment. They can't repeat the ritual. They are insane because they're antithetical to nature itself, to creation itself. And that act is no different from the college student who drinks themselves, who attacks their being, who needs to attack their being that way. It is as self-destructive, which does come true. You experience the art or what you consider to be the art, which is really just your practice, which is really just your inability to do the ritual, do you see? It's not pleasurable. You suffer the same things the world suffers. You suffer your depression, your anxiety, your self-harm. It's not, right? It's not that you just don't do the form correctly. It comes with all of this other stuff. Why? Because it is out of alignment with the very nature of the universe itself, which you are a part of. You are self-sabotaging every time you do that. This is how we are supposed to understand our art. This is how we are supposed to understand the dojo. This is our Catholic Mass. But we come to do these rituals because they are the very nature of who and what we are and who and what the universe is. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.